Wow, it is so great to have all of you with us this morning. I, I really love that greeting. He is risen. He is risen indeed. When we said that, some of you had this sense, and you're like, oh, this is what we always say on Easter. It's just, I'm going to put this down here so I don't trip over it. It's just a, one of those religious words we say. And so, and then others of you, like, your eyes were about to ready to pop out of your head with excitement because there's just this truth and life in it for you. Now, I want you to know that this is actually a really, really, really old greeting. In fact, it goes all the way back to the first disciples when they greeted each other. That's what they said. After Jesus rose from the dead, they said, he is risen. And they'd say, he is risen indeed. And then they would kiss each other. So do you want to do this again? You sure? Okay. Kissing strangers, just saying. So, you know, and we have actual records of this being used as early as 400 A.D. But even before that, there's legends that Mary Magdalene, one of the first person to see Jesus raised from the dead, went all the way to the Roman emperor. And when she came before the emperor, she didn't kneel, she didn't bow, she just looked at it, and she said, He is risen. He is risen. This is a powerful, powerful statement. But my hope is that it's more than an empty tradition for you. The words, He is risen, they remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ, as crazy as, as it sounds, the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, that's what we celebrate at Easter, that death of Jesus was not in vain, that it wasn't overpowering for him, that it wasn't too strong for him, but that he rose from the dead. And when we say he is risen, what we're doing is we're sharing with each other, no matter what we believe, we're sharing with each other this incredible truth, this crazy hope we have. So let's say it again. He is risen. <clears throat> long ago the apostle paul wrote a letter to some of his friends in this town called corinth it's about 50 miles from athens greece now this letter is really old it's several thousand years old at this point but we've had this letter preserved throughout the centuries and we've preserved it here in the scripture and so if you have a bible with you and you want to open it to the book of first corinthians we're going to be looking at chapter 15 And if you don't have a bible with you on the back of your notes we put the scripture in there for you um, we've broken up the letter into chapters and verses. If you're not familiar with how the Bible works, the reason we did that is so that we could find the place. I mean, this is a long letter. It's, it's, it's several chapters for us. And then we broke it into verses so that we can find our way around it. Paul didn't write it this way. He just wrote the words and just like a letter you'd write to your friend. And he sent it off to his friends and they read it and studied it. But they found that it was so significant, so important that they kept sharing it with each other. They got together at church and they'd read it. They'd go over to their friend's house and say, hey, I got this letter. You want to hear this? Listen to this. And they'd read the letter. And so we've saved it and preserved it because Jesus has spoken to us through it. God has spoken to us through it. So we're going to be looking at chapter 15. We're going to start at very, very top, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. This is the story, he is saying, that will literally save your life. Now, this morning, the story that I'm sharing is old news for many of you. But this is a reminder of what we believe. And if you don't know this story this morning, I pray that you'll pay close attention to what he's going to continue to say. First, he says this. It's by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached you, unless you believed in vain. See, now, some people have come into this church community, and they've begun telling every, each other that this is crazy, okay? This story that you guys are spreading around, this is crazy talk. People don't do this. People don't just spontaneously come out of the grave. Gravestones don't just roll away. People don't walk out alive after three days lying in the ground. They would stink, OK? 
okay? They would be rotted flesh. This does not happen. It's crazy talk. But the people, so the people hearing this began to question what they really believed. And Paul says this. He says, hold fast to that truth. Hold fast to the story that Jesus rose from the dead. Don't let go. You didn't believe in vain. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing he has ever said. He delivered delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Bible's been talking about this since Genesis. This is going to happen. It's all these little clues and hints throughout the whole of Scripture that this was what was going to happen. This is what the followers of Jesus, this simple message, this is what we call the good news, the gospel. If you want to use the Greek, it's euangelion, which means the good message. This is what we believe deeply, that God has brought good news from us. Paul is reminding his friends, just like I'm reminding you this morning, of what Easter is really all about. It's not about Easter bunnies. It's not about Easter eggs. So those have significance, actually, at Easter. And we learned last year about the Easter egg. Jesus is the best Easter egg ever. It's like this thing that you don't expect. It's hiding in your yard, and you crack it open, and there's this great gift inside. That's Jesus, the first and best Easter egg ever. But Easter is not about Easter eggs. It's about Jesus. The first part of this hope, the good news, is that Jesus died. That's why we have a cross. He died not just to die, but he died on behalf of this train wreck that we call humanity. For every war, for every murder, for every theft, for every broken relationship, for every time greed stepped in and separated us, for every abuse, for everything that you and I have ever done wrong, from our childhood to our death, and not just you and me, but all of humanity from times beginning to times ending, for every wrong, that has ever been done, justice had to be served. So Jesus took our cross. But the cross isn't just about justice, thankfully. It's really all about love. It's really all about love. There are things worse than death. You guys know that? There are things worse than death. I can't, I have never experienced this. Thank God I've never experienced this. But in my dreams, I've had dreams where I have literally woke up sweating and bawling in tears because in my dream, one of my children or my wife was taken from me, stolen or killed. They're gone. And I'm in my dreams. I I can't even imagine this in life. But in my dreams, the amount of emotion, the weight of the pain of that moment, it's just emotionally overwhelming to even ponder it. Now, let's just say that it wasn't a dream, that it really happened. Oh, man, I don't even want to talk about it. It's so scary to me. I just like, I think I would cease to function. I really would. I'd probably climb into a hole someplace. But let's say it happened. But that somehow, some way, there was this one chance, this one chance that I could go and get my wife or my kid, that I could go rescue them from death. I'd take it, wouldn't you? I mean, this has been in mythology for centuries. Hercules did this very thing. His, his beloved woman dies, she goes, and so he follows her to Hades to retrieve her and to save her from this death. This is a dream, though. This is a, a legend. And yet, this is the story of God. If I would feel so badly, so dysfunctional, I'd become so dysfunctional if one of my family members died, my wife or my kids. And this is me, who is a selfish man, who struggles to love well, who struggles to give his whole heart to somebody. 
If I would feel that way, I can't even begin to imagine how the God of the universe who created each one of us and created this entire world and created the entire human race and loves it completely, whose very character is perfect, unconditional, unrelenting love, I can't even begin to imagine how that God would feel when he lost his beloved children. Can you guys imagine that? How that would feel? And yet, this takes place, and God says there's still a chance. He's heartbroken, but he is full of hope. And he begins to set into play a rescue plan, a plan that's going to rescue us from Hades, that's going to restore us to right relationship with him, that's going to bring us all together with him, both communally as a people, but individually. You each can have a relationship with God. That's what Easter is all about, the culmination of God's rescue plan. Jesus, a perfectly innocent person, the Son of God, pays the price that justice demands. And that price that we have already been paying, death, right? is the price we've already been paying. We pay it a thousand ways. We all know that someday we are going to die. It might happen on the way out the door. It might happen 80 years from now. But eventually, all of us are going to die. And if it's not that kind of death, then it's the thousand little deaths we experience. It's the death of sickness. It's the death of relationships. It's the death of hope. It's the death of a dream. It's the death of, of a job. All of these deaths that accumulate upon us, this is what we live under. It's part and parcel with being human. And Jesus goes to the cross to die that death and then stays in the grave. He dies on Friday. He rests on Saturday and is raised to new life on Sunday. And this is our story. If Jesus had stayed dead, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Sin and death would have won. Game over. Game, set, match. It's done. But Jesus didn't. He stayed in the grave for three days and then rose again. The good news even gets better, though. Jesus not only died, was buried, and in the grave three days, he rose from the dead, and that's good news. Or it would be if it was true, right? It would be if it was true. Some of you are saying that right now. It would be if it was true. The people in Corinth were saying the same thing. This is a crazy story. It can't be true. So Paul tackles this very thought. It can't be true. That's not real. Resurrection is for real. This is the truth. I encourage you to read this next part of your text on your own. But Paul gives us some actual, solid evidence, empirical, scientific evidence, evidence that would hold up in a court of law that this happened. Here's what he says. He says, there were hundreds of people who witnessed his death. There were hundreds of people who witnessed his body being placed in a tomb. There were hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ walking around, talking with his friends, eating with them, saying, go ahead, touch my hands, touch my side, feel me, see that I am real. Hundreds of people. This is how he says it. First, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, the disciple. Then to the twelve, that's the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. He showed up at one time. And that's not counting the women who saw him first. So ladies, if you feel left out of the story, guess what? God's so crazy, women got to meet him first. Coming right out of the grave, they were the first people to meet him and the first people to share the good news of his resurrection. Then it goes on. He says, most of these people are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That's code for dead. Just in case you missed that, they've fallen asleep. It's code for dead. Paul is writing this to his friends in Corinth 25 years after it happened. So if he's going to make claims like this, 
that there's these hundreds of people that saw Jesus rose from the dead, many of these people are still alive. Many of these people are still alive. And with the circulation of this letter, there certainly would be historical documents saying, there's crazy Christians over there in Corinth believing this resurrection business, and I was there, and it didn't happen. And there is none. There is no evidence of anybody denying these claims. He goes on to say, then he appeared to James. James is significant because he's Jesus' brother. So he's saying, look, not only did 500 people see him, not only are they not saying he didn't rise from the dead, this is his brother who grew up in his house with him in Nazareth. This was the kid that they teased and fought and argued and they played stickball and they hung out and they shared a bedroom together and they shared dinner together and they knew each other like a brother and a brother would. James, his very brother, saw him face to face and James said, that is my brother, Jesus of Nazareth. He was dead. He is not dead. He is alive. And then last of all, to the one who was, as to, to me, as to one who was untimely born. Paul himself, after the fact, also saw Jesus. So if you want evidence that the resurrection is real, if you're questioning whether that, could that have happened, Paul is giving us that evidence. It happened. But i got to say this, evidence doesn't change us. We still have to make a leap of faith, right? We still have to choose to buy into this. We still have to choose to believe this. And if it's true, if it's real, then it deserves more than just an intellectual assent. It, it deserves more than just a, okay, maybe it happened. If it happened, it demands our soul, our life, our all. Evidence requires a leap of faith. And for many of us, the idea that someone who was dead for three days coming back to life, that's just crazy. It doesn't happen especially nowadays where we embalm people, right? It just doesn't happen. I recently heard a story from another town where a man had died and was taken to the undertakers, and he was embalmed, and he was actually dead for seven days. And they were going to take him to the gravesite. His coffin was in the hearse. And this woman, his wife, says, we have got to take him to the man of God, is what they said. This happened in another country. There was a man there preaching the good news. This guy wasn't talking about healing. He wasn't talking about resurrection. He was just preaching about Jesus. And they brought him into the building. They brought his coffin into the building, and instantly there was pounding on the underside of the coffin. This man who had been embalmed and dead for seven days was brought back to new life through Jesus Christ. There is power in this, and these stories are true. That just because something is crazy, like the resurrection, just because stories like this seem outlandish and impossible, doesn't make them less true. Now, in our culture, we have lots of things that are actually very true, that sound very crazy, and most of us don't even know or believe them. Like, for example, in Scotland, their national animal is the unicorn. That's crazy. That unicorn, probably not that unicorn. Okay, get this. This morning we had strawberries for breakfast. How many of you ate strawberries? That is not even a berry. Did you know that? A strawberry is not a berry. But guess what? Bananas and avocados and watermelons, all berries. It's crazy, but it's true. And get this. There are now more fake flamingos in the world than real ones. These are crazy, crazy facts. But the fact that they're crazy... The reality that they're silly does not make them less true, right? 
And the same is true of the resurrection. Even though it seems absolutely outlandish and crazy to you and to me, it's still true. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, not only is Jesus' resurrection for real, the good news gets even better because the resurrection is for us. It's for you and for me. Jump down to verse 20. Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, code for dead. It is like that ripe first apple on the tree. If you have an apple tree at home, and we had apple trees in our backyard, we've had them since we've been married pretty much, and there's always the first apple that comes off. That first apple, it's called the first fruits, the very first one, and you eat it, and you taste it, and you go, this is a promise of the rest of the crop to come, right? This, there's more where this apple came from. He says that Jesus is the first fruits. There is more resurrection where that came from. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of dead. For in Adam all die, and so in Christ all shall be made alive. See, Paul is saying, look, we know that we're all destined to die someday. That's the nature of things here. It's what we're destined for. And that death comes through one man, Adam, the first person ever chose to turn his heart and his life away from God, to do things his own way. But just like death comes to all of us, that's our normal experience in life. Through Adam, in Jesus, our normal experience can be new life and resurrection. Not just in the afterlife, not just at the end of life, but all through life. Every broken relationship, every hurt, every abuse, every pain, every war, every strife, every toil can all be transformed and changed in the power of Jesus. I'm not convinced that it's possible to transform or change in my own power. The things that are broken in me, I've tried and pushed and tried and tried to change and worked harder and worked smarter, and none of those things have changed me. What has changed me and what has changed many of us here is one thing alone. It's Jesus Christ and the power of his death and resurrection alive in us. But each in his own order, verse 23 says, Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, for he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does that mean, right? Paul is this poet-theologian guy. He likes to take really complicated ideas and make them more complicated but beautiful. You guys ever experience? I mean, it's like poets seem to do this. I love poetry, but sometimes I just read a Wendell Berry book this week. He's a great author, but I'm reading this thing, and like every sentence is dessert, right? It's just, it's like, how did you even craft this? And it's so amazing that you forget the story, and Paul does this sometimes. He's, he's, he's like taking this really complicated idea and making it complicated, but it's really beautiful. So what I think he is saying here is that there is a process that we go through, each one of us, in which death in us is defeated. It's a journey. It's a road that we have to walk that God doesn't just snap things into perfection, that he wants us to participate with him in this journey, to walk the road of death and suffering and so that it is worked out of us and so that we are raised to new life as a process. Eugene Peterson calls this, calls this a long obedience in the same direction. 
It's obeying the Lord in the same direction for the rest of our life until at the end of our life we look back and we say, look, that thing I was struggling with in middle school, that thing died. It doesn't, it doesn't rule me anymore. There's no authority to it. That, that thing that, that in my, my marriage, that our marriage was being driven apart by, that thing that used to rule how we spoke to one another, it used to rule how we talked and, and, and treated one another, that that thing is dead. It died as we obeyed Christ. And guess what happened? My marriage that was dying because of it has been raised to new life in Christ. That thing that has kept me from, from loving well, that thing that's kept me hidden, and my heart hurting, that thing died. And that was this old person. And now I'm raised to new life in Christ. We could read this and say, oh look, there's all this destruction words and all these enemies that have to be destroyed. We should go maybe get our tanks and our guns and our troops, right? And we're going to go destroy the enemies of God. Well, newsflash, we tried that. It was called the Crusades. We're going to go and just, you know, destroy the enemies of God. And it didn't work out well for anybody. It was just pain and destruction. And it was actually more of a reflection of the brokenness of the world than it was of new life in Christ. So he is not talking about physical enemies. He is talking about the enemy within, the rules and authority and power that lives inside of us that keeps us from being other than what God has intended us to be. We are moved by certain powers. We are driven by, by things from our past, things from our, our upbringing and our parents. Shame, pride, greed, guilt, selfishness, protection, hiding, addiction, jealousy, division. These are the powers and authorities that Paul is talking about. These are enemies of God. And that's good news. Because those are the things that cause us so much pain, right? Those are the things that cause us so much hurt. Those are the things that separate us. And God looks down and he says, that's what I hate. That's what I intend to destroy. That is the death that you are suffering, and I am bringing new life. And it says that the very last enemy to be destroyed, after shame, after greed, after pride, after hopelessness, after failure, after all of these things, will be death itself. Because as we died in Adam, in Christ, we will live. We will be raised to new life in him. Now, some people say that heaven is just a crutch. That heaven is just a hope that we have to hold on to as human beings. Because there's nothing after this, and it's just, it's just not, not right. We can't comprehend nothingness. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if his resurrection is real, and the evidence points to it being real, then there is something after death, then there is something after the end. And that something is for us. And while our hope is in heaven, our hope is not just then. It's for the here and now, that we can be raised to life now. Do you remember that list of people that we read a minute ago? Peter, apostles, James, all these people. I want you to think a little bit about their stories. If you know anything about them, you know that these were pretty messed up guys. Peter, Peter was not just a follower of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' three closest friends in life. And Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And not just in a moment like at the bar or down at the grocery store. Hey, do you know that guy? Oh, no, I don't know him. You know, he's wearing a robe. I don't know that guy. That's kind of weird. It wasn't a moment like that. We're talking about a moment where Jesus is literally being beaten by Roman centurions who knew how to beat somebody. Okay, They knew how to get a good beating on. And they were putting it on Jesus. And Peter is standing off in the shadows. 
Somebody says, hey, do you know him? No, I don't know him. Peter. All the way to the cross, three times Peter denies who Jesus is, denies that he even knows him. And Peter is one of the first people to see Jesus, and Jesus restores Peter to relationship. If Jesus can restore Peter to that sort of relationship, if Jesus can take Peter, who denied him, and say, no, I'm going to build my church on you, and, and I'm going I'm to lead other people to a relationship with me through you. Guess what? There's nobody in this room that is beyond that sort of relationship. James, his brother, James didn't even like Jesus in life. James was constantly at Jesus' feet. He's like, you're being crazy. You're using your power wrong. You should be doing more. You should be, you know, you should be healing this person. He was always critical of Jesus, is the stories we have of him. And James sees Jesus. And Jesus uses James to build his church. They were enemies. They were brothers. And now they're friends. All through the Gospels, there's this crazy, broken relationship to Jesus. And Jesus restores every one of them. And if they are not beyond redemption, then you are not beyond redemption. There's this old hymn. And they've recently rewritten it. And every time I hear it on the radio, I like get near tears. I don't know if you have a song like that. I don't know, maybe it's blue eyes or something like that for you. Sky, smile, and you like cry. But this song for me, it, like it, it like pierces my heart every time I hear it. And and I used to sing this song all the time. And if you know this, just sing with me. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior. Low note, all the day long. Very nice. Now they rewrote this song, and they used that line, this is my story. And he says in this song, he says, every time I tell my story, to tell you my story is to tell of Jesus. It's to tell you of him. This is my story. It's a story of grace that is greater than all of my sin. Love that is greater than all of my brokenness. Love that is greater than everything that I have ever done, could ever do, and that we all collectively could ever do. It's, it's a story of where justice was served, but where mercy wins. It's a story of the kindness of Jesus that opens us to a relationship. That's story of Easter. That's what we celebrate when we say he is risen. He is risen indeed. Jeremy, would you guys come on up? We're going to sing a song to close this morning. I'm going to make a slight change of subject as I do so. I like pallets. It's a confession. I, I put them up here. I, I like pallets. And I've recently been given a hard time of it because uh, there is a church satire website called the Babylon Bee and what they do is they write these really snarky articles about the church, like, you know, the last this, this church was arrested because they didn't sing any Hillsongs United songs or whatever. They're all church jokes. If you're not a church person, you don't know the church jokes, you're not going to get it. But So pallets are apparently this cool and upcoming thing. They're hip. They're cool. They're even hipster, right? And I love pallets because, so they wrote this article that says, I got what's the title? Of the article? A discarded pallet hoping for a second chance, right? And they interview the pallet. He says, I'm just hoping that somebody will even use me on a wall somewhere in the back, you know, drop of the stage. I, mean, I love pallets because when I look at a pallet, 
what I see is possibilities. It could be a wine rack. It, it could be a backdrop for chalkboards. It could, it could be a compost bin. It could, you know, there's so many possibilities we see. And I think I like pallets because, in a way, I identify with pallets. Serious. I, I kind of feel like a pallet. You know, I, I was this thing that had a use. And then I wasn't needed anymore. And now I was just sitting there, and all I can do is hope that maybe somebody would use me for something good. That I wouldn't just be left to rot. That I wouldn't just be left alone someplace in the dirt. All of us are like that pallet, right? We, all of us have these places of death in our lives, and we're just hoping for a second chance. We're just hoping that maybe we can be transformed. We have hope. We have hope, like this pallet over here has hope. That we can be raised in new life. That we can have a second chance. Transformation is a God word, okay? It's not, it's not just a dictionary word. It's not a human word. We don't transform things. We change things. We renew things. We recreate things. But we don't transform things. We don't take nothing and turn it into something. We don't take death and make life. Only God does this. It's God's business. It's what he is into doing. It's his hobby. It's his, his career. It's his hope. It's his life. And it was his death and his resurrection, and it can be yours. He is making old things new. That's the book of Revelation. That's why we have this theater. 1920s, vaudeville, decorated, beautiful movie theater that's fallen down around its ears and we're constantly fixing. We are making old things new as a reflection of what Jesus has done. He is upcycling his people. He is taking broken down, useless pallets and turning them into something new and glorious. And this is our story. We are being made into a new creation with a new relationship with him. And we believe as Christians that we do not believe this in vain. So I want to challenge you this morning. If you've never bought into the story of Jesus, you've never heard it said in this way, but you've sought, you've fought, you've worked, you've tried harder and harder to be a better person, and you've spent more time in your life trying than actually being free in it, I want to introduce you to Jesus the resurrected king, the one who rules over life and death and is offering you his life. And it's personal, which makes it scary, right? You know, if God's just universal, if God's just this out there thing, then, you know, it's not a big deal to just kind of be like, oh, whatever, I'm going to do my thing, you do your, th your thing, universe. But this is a personal God. This is, this is someone you have a friendship with, someone who loves you, and you have to respond to them. So it's scary. Something impersonal is easy to deal with. But this morning, God wants to deal with you personally. And if this is for you this morning, I just want to invite you to come to the backspace with me. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray over you. I'd like to lead you in the next steps and to help you start on a journey with Christ. I don't know if anybody here is in this place, but I'd like to invite you. So, as we sing this song, I'm going to move up to the backspace, and there's going to be a few people with me. I invite you to come back there and be prayed for. And if you believe, if you have bought into this, if this is your story, if this is your song, I want to encourage you this morning. Don't let the world say that this story is so crazy it can't be true for you. Because it is still true today 
as it was 2,000 years ago. It is still as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is still as real and as true and as hope-filled as it ever has been. And it is true for you. You are being raised to new life in Christ. Hold fast to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't let it just become some historical event. Don't let it just become religion. Let it be real for you. Let it change and transform you. And let it lead you in a way of life that brings new life to you, to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Hold fast. Let it have authority over you and destroy every rule and every authority that would try to destroy you. In the name of Jesus. We're going to sing a song in closing. Would you stand with me? Jesus, I pray right now as our hearts are being moved, Lord, that you would give us courage to do the thing that we need to do, whether it's to go forward or backward, as the case may be, to be prayed for or to receive you, or Lord, just to lift up our hands and to worship you and declare this message that the resurrecting King is resurrecting me. God, I pray that this song would have new life and new meaning for each one of us as we sing it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jandy, would you lead us? And as she sings, would you just join me in the backspace? If you need to receive Jesus for the first time this morning, let's come back there and I'll pray with you.